The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we thank you for the testimony again of the psalmist calling us to, to worship these concluding hallelujah psalms that finish out the Psalter, the praise Yah, the directing of our hearts to worship and such is the nature of why you've created us. We are by design to be worshipers, to return thanks and and exaltation and glory back to you. We're only affirming that which is true, not just our experience and our relationship to that which is true, but that which is uh, supersedes our experience, the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of creation, but also certainly to include our experience um, being that we have we have known and enjoyed the redemption found in Christ, a redemption that was promised from the very uh, fall of man and uh, a redemption that has worked itself out over uh, thousands of years of progress, not just of, of man's progress. You've certainly, as we'll explore today, hit the re- reset button on man's uh, progress, as it were, and bringing a worldwide flood and destruction that came with that. The progress was with your promises and your faithfulness to fulfill them and to to do as you said and to to work that out in a variety of providential ways from the small, tiny, tiny decisions associated with seemingly inconsequential and peculiar individuals to um, nations being moved about like uh, little pieces on a chessboard, working themselves out according to your purpose and fulfilling your plans and Peter reminds us even that your promises are sure and that uh, they strengthen us and they work in effectual work in us. And so help us to be diligent to, to pursue to understand them. We think about the prophets of old who, who preceded us and ministered on our behalf as they searched to understand the very things that uh, we celebrate. Uh, we, we have this Christmas season, as it were, because of the things which they long to understand, uh, the coming of Christ and the nature of his sufferings and the subsequent glories. And so we, we thank you. Um, what a privilege and stewardship you've afforded us to, to be a people that worship you with a measure of anticipation, but with so much fulfillment already and with now a, a final anticipation. And so just as we celebrate the coming of Christ, so may we long for his return and may that provoke us as we rejoice in this uh, season and give thought to such things. And again, even as was testified in the Psalms, we, we see your glory throughout this uh, natural earth and this natural world, but uh, we're, we're so grateful for um, you stepping into time and you stepping into this natural and taking the form of a man, humbling yourself, being obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. and then being resurrected and ascending to the Father's right hand. So we, we rejoice in this hope. And we also give thanks to you that um, part of our hope is the sure reality of judgment as well. Uh, our deliverance from judgment is certainly part of that, but also that you will answer um, the offense that's been directed toward you um, from the very fall of man and the, the plummeting of creation into this uh, the mess that it it has experienced and the, the tarnishing and the, the, the rebelliousness and the mocking. Um, we thank you that it doesn't just um, get looked past. It's not that you're going to make all things right for your people and we'll just pretend like that never happened as though your holiness could be um, left unoffended or just um, dismiss these things. You certainly overlook many things in your patience, but we, we give thanks to you that there will be a day of righteous judgment there will be a day of reckoning and you will satisfy your holiness and you will accomplish the full range of your purposes. Um, that's part of our hope. That's part of our expectation. Um, we don't look forward with glee at those who will suffer and perish. We look forward with rejoicing and worshipful gratitude that you will be exalted. We do pray for your mercy, though. Um, we thank you that you've been patient to withhold judgment, to withhold the final experience of these things and ask that uh, many would come to repentance, that they would be, um, that they would feel the weight of that which they can't bear and that they would run to you. Um, we think about the picture that Bunyan, um, John Bunyan, so skillfully expressed with Pilgrim, feeling that weight uh, running from the city of destruction. And, 
and such is the disposition of those who are outside of Christ. We pray they would feel that burden and, and run to find freedom. But Lord, we do give thanks to you, um, and we want to be found faithful now in this time, um, thinking again, thinking about Christmas, thinking about the, the faithfulness that you've expressed in that, but a, mindful um, that you will answer the mocker, even as we'll see today, um, that those who would challenge the, the, the sweep of your scriptures, but especially the promise of your coming, let us find uh, comfort in the fact that you answer them, and you answer them most perfectly because you answer through your sure word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're returning to Second Peter chapter 3, and we're going to finish this uh, first portion of the chapter today. So I know that sometimes I'll label First Peter chapter, I think a couple of weeks ago, it was First Peter, or Second Peter, goodness gracious. I'm catching up as we finish the book. Second Peter chapter 3, I think I had introduction to the chapter, verses 1 to 2, and then last week it was Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, part 2. I'm like, wait, what happened to part 1? Well, that introduction included part 1. And now we're coming to the third and final uh, engagement of this first section of our final chapter, verses 1 through 7. And with it, it's Peter's initial rebuttal to the mocker's mocking. So here we're going to see that Peter's going to further develop his argument as the chapter continues. But the sum of his engagement today will answer the mocker's argument that nothing has changed and nothing will change. Again, that's the nature, that's the, the core of the mocker's mocking. Nothing has changed Therefore, nothing will change. An argument that it's really continued into the present day under the broader theory of uniformitarianism. So, real creative titling, I guess. Everything's uniform. It's all the same. It hasn't changed. It won't change. We think about that in terms of the laws of nature. There's, there's certain things that we study in terms of uh, natural science. We're grateful for things happening the way they do. We're grateful that we don't wake up and like, well... Is the sun going to come up today or not? Maybe, maybe not. Um, is gravity going to work? Maybe, maybe not. Now, there's, there is some uniform nature to the natural earth and to the natural creation, to the natural experience, and we, we recognize that. But we also recognize there is a supernatural God that supersedes these things and will do so at his discretion and according to his purposes. So today, again, it's a broader theory uh, in terms of as you apply it to various things, but as it applies to theological uh, mockery, we could put it under the umbrella of uniformitarianism, which by its nature also rejects, um, usually rejects, I should say, biblical creation account because, well, it doesn't fit their models. And so, um, but obviously that could be challenged in another, another context. And without getting bogged down into a range of theories that struggle to understand our, our world and our relationship to it, I want you to be aware of that because, again, that's that's the contemporary version of what the mockers are doing now. But with that said, let's root ourselves in which, that which supersedes theories, that which is beyond uh, speculation and mockery, namely the truth of the scriptures. And we're going to begin by reading our passage together, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation." For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So as I've said, uh, we're now in the third and final week of this passage, but I want to provide a, a view to its development here, something that was not quite as necessary before, but I think is helpful for today. So one of the things that I do when I'm teaching others um, to, to study or teach, I've done a number of classes on teaching teachers how to teach, not necessarily broadly, but specifically the scriptures. And one of the things, one of the early disciplines that I, I really press them to try to work at is as you're engaging and studying a text is to take the time to outline it. 
And it's something I continue to, to press myself on. And especially with the Psalms, sometimes you can get in this general casual engagement with, well, here's the general thrust of it, or here's the development of it. But now when you actually have to sit down and force yourself to think about how is it developing and what is the structure of it? And, and sometimes you're going to rework that as you engage it and continue to work. But that's a first, it's a good general early discipline, a foundational discipline. And it's not inherently necessary, again, for all passages. And as sometimes their flow and development are often quite plain, almost intuitively clear. So you can kind of just read it and pick it up, but it's still a valuable exercise. And when trying to get a handle and appreciation for a book as a whole, I think it's particularly important. And so as I transitioned from 1 Peter to 2 Peter, I outlined the entire book, and I was trying to think, how do the pieces fit together? He doesn't just go from uh, the... The, these things in chapter one and the, the inspiration of the scriptures and false te- and then false teachers to mockers for no reason. He, he's crafting an argument and it fits together. He's developing things. So that's, that's helpful to outline it. But also when you outline early in the development of a book, it's not uncommon that your early conclusions have to be modified, right? A lot of times we make plans and they change when you start getting in the, the middle of things. Well, Certainly with outlining, sometimes you have to modify it when you're in the more meticulous work of smaller portions of the text that I think this would communicate it better. I didn't appreciate the flow of thought until I really was in it. Well, when I first outlined Second Peter for our study of this book, I chose to title this section of verses 1 through 7 as um, the esteemed and sure word of God. The esteemed and sure word of God, a title that from what I can recall did not closely match many others in their own work. There was some variations and different emphasis that was developed, but this is the one that I think holds up to further study and consideration. And I want you to see this, not to congratulate my early efforts to frame and express the structure and flow of this book. Like, wow, he, he got it. He got verses one through seven so many weeks or months ago. That's not the issue and not my point of emphasis, but rather because I believe that Peter's communicating something here and I don't want us to miss it. I think that's very valuable to understanding not just mockers and not just false teachers and not just creation and not just the flood. I think there's something that he wants you to see in the flow and development of his argument and how he emphasizes things. So with this in view, I would remind you that over these last few weeks, we've addressed both the similarities of the assault on the scriptures by the false teachers and now the mockers and Peter's clear emphasis on the scriptures in this chapter. So I want you to see that development. And I'd like to take a moment to more directly demonstrate this emphasis on the Word of God in this section. So we've been walking through it. We're going to be finishing it today, but I want you to see it again thematically, how it develops and how it fits together. So we first observe this focus in the Scriptures with Peter's referencing two letters that he's written these believers, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Some would argue that there's not the continuity between First and Second Peter. First Peter wasn't a letter of reminder, so maybe there was like we had Pauline letters that were lost letters or just letters that weren't inspired, weren't preserved in the same way. But I think that we've demonstrated there is continuity, and we've argued and tried to develop that over the last couple of weeks. So he's got to focus on First Peter and Second Peter. I've, I've written you these two letters, these two inspired letters from, from God himself through the apostles. So that's in verse 1. We then note that he speaks to the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and now through Christ's apostles, their testimony and teaching being expressed as the commandment, something we developed last week. So here in verse 2, the testimony of the totality of the scriptures. So Peter's own letters and now the words of the prophets, Old Testament, the words of the apostles, the New Testament. And then we have the two-part assault on the scriptures. The first is the uh, as against the testimony and teaching of the apostles, challenging the sure promise of Christ's return, which will then be part of our major point of emphasis today. The second is against the words of the holy prophets who tell us God's ways throughout redemptive history to include the acts of judgment in verse 4. And then finally, we have, in Peter, uh, we have um, Peter's rebuttal, um, a treatment of the range of the testimony of the scriptures from the creation to the worldwide flood and ultimately to the great white throne of judgment. So we have an extreme range of the testimony of the scriptures packed into his response, their, well, their offense and his response here. And the, to include also the, present, or the passing of the present natural creation all that's covered in verses 4 through 7. So he covers all the way from creation, flood, to Christ's return, and even the new heavens, new earth. That's a large sweep, and it's the testimony of the scriptures, which is what is using to answer the mockers. So as you can see, again, Peter has a very clear emphasis on the esteemed and sure word of God, 
throughout this section, which is, again, the object of the mocker's mocking. And here they, again, we've emphasized this before, but we're going to emphasize it again. They're not mocking your speech or your conduct. That, that's been an element we've addressed before. Remember in First Peter, I believe, chapter 3, uh, maybe into chapter 4 there, the, the, they don't understand your conduct anymore. They don't understand why you don't run with them in these things. That's not the issue here. It's not about your speech or your conduct. Rather, it's a direct assault, a direct mocking on the word of God itself, namely that which informs your speech, your conduct, and ultimately your hope. So it's a strategic assault. So the word of God also, we recognize, can withstand such petty assaults. Uh, we, we don't live in fear of, oh, no, they've challenged the scriptures. What's going to happen? And we, must we rush to their defense? Well, we rush to their defense in the regard to just provide and declare their clear testimony, which is what Peter's doing. So they can handle um, the assault, as it were, and the, the pettiness of the assault. And they'll go on to demonstrate yet once more that they are esteemed and sure, which is part of what Peter's going to lay out for us today. So we need to keep these things in mind as we continue our engagement with this passage. Also, I'd like to remind you that this last week we took some time to demonstrate the thematic emphasis that Peter plainly developed regarding Christ's return and future judgment. This is part of our knitting First and Second Peter together. So again, some would say, well, First Peter doesn't stir you up by way of reminder, and yet Second uh, Peter chapter 3 says this is now the second letter I'm writing to you to stir you up by way of reminder. I would argue it is stirring us up by way of reminder as we watch that development of Christ coming, Christ's glory, and future judgment, which carries on heavily in chapter First Peter and into Second Peter. So we saw that that between these two letters, we highlighted twelve passages, and I bring that up here because again, I want you to see the nature of the mocking. I want you to see the nature of the continuity, the emphasis on the scriptures, and the specifically with the mocking that um, it won't be directed to whether or not these matters were addressed or even fully developed. It's not that they're saying, well, you know, Peter never talked about that, or, or the Lord never spoke to that, or the apostles never developed that doctrine. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. They, they clearly were addressed, even, for, uh, even fully developed, as is, again, clearly laid out there in between First and Second Peter. Rather, the assault is not in regard to the volume of their attention, but to the veracity of their content. That's what the false teachers are going after, not whether or not Christ's return was discussed, developed, and emphasized throughout the New Testament and throughout Peter's letters, but whether or not it has any truthfulness to it. Can it bear up under criticism? Can it, can it hold up? Sure, it was talked about. Sure, it was emphasized, but is it true? So the mocker's aim is not to disprove Christ's glorious return and future judgment being significant matters of attention and the apostles' testimonies and teaching, but to challenge their capacity to scrutiny and therefore their truthfulness because the mocker, they're not indifferent in their unbelief. We need to, to make sure we're really clear on that. It's not that they're just uh, addressing different religious systems and they're, well, that one, that's silly, or that one doesn't have credibility, or that one doesn't really develop those arguments like its followers adhere to it, say, rather they're not indifferent in their unbelief, rather they're outright hostile as their worldview and their conduct cannot bear up under the truth and the glory of Christ's return. It, it's an unsustainable situation for them. If this is true, they cannot continue as they are. If this is true, they have to give an answer. So they can't stand in the Lord's presence, either as his beloved or his enemy. They understand that, and I hope that we do. I hope that we understand that when we pray and we think about and we dwell on the Lord's return, it is glorious, it is our anticipation, it is our joy, it is our hope, but it is also the satisfaction of his wrath. It's the satisfaction of his just judgment. The, the mocker understands that. It'd be a real shame for them to get that and for us not to. So I want to really press that this is part of Christ's return. And so how do they respond? They respond with mockery. And some will dismiss matters and hope that such a disposition will make them just go away. You know, if I, if I mock it, I belittle it, I shame it, maybe it'll just go away. It just won't bother me anymore. And by this, I don't mean like a child playing peekaboo. I think I've already spoiled this a few weeks ago that, you know, people don't really disappear when you cover your eyes. But rather, don't think of it in that regard, that if I just dismiss it, but rather think of it in the regard of, of Pilate. Remember washing his hands. What is he doing? Well, Pilate washing his hands of his direct and personal culpability in Jesus' unlawful crucifixion. He, he clearly had a hand in this, right? 
He, he was the authorizing legal agent, and yet he basically says, hey, it's on you. Well, we know if we hold it up in a, even a Roman court to scrutinize it, it's on Pilate also. And so it's this wishful dismissing. If I mock it, then you know what? It just isn't there. It's not there to bother me. I can assuage my conscience. I can live as I want to. You know, I didn't, I just, there's nothing to do with it. I'll just dismiss it. It's gone. Others will be so emboldened in their arrogant unbelief as they stare directly at truth and refuse to believe what's before them and mock it. And we have another example of this, like the religious leaders beckoning Jesus to come down from the cross that they might believe. And they knew full well, what would, he, what would they have done if he'd come down? Well, they'd be doomed. That would be a, a dramatic and terrible situation. But there they are looking at who they know to be the Son of Man. They, they tried to squelch his testimony in a variety of ways, including murderous plots outside of even Jesus himself. And here they're looking at it. They're willing to lie and deceive to, to cover up things. But they're going to just dismiss truth, just arrogantly shamefully dismiss truth. And so you have different forms of denial, as it were. I'm going to wish it away, or I'm just going to mock it away. And now we've come to those who continue their condemning legacy and the mocking of Christ. So that's the branch that we have here. So we have some people that just, I'm going to demand it goes away, and I'm going to look away until I just don't think about it anymore. Sometimes how people treat medical issues with, you know what, if I don't think about it, it's not there. It's there, and it's unfortunate, but it's just what it is. And then you have, again, those who would mock it, refuse, and antagonistically um, assault it, as it were. And that's where the mockers are. And this legacy's continued. It's continued on from those who could look at Jesus on the cross and say, come down, and I'll believe, to now, where is he? Why isn't he returning? You know, he said he would. So there's a lot of expectation. Nothing's changed. Nothing will change. So instead of directing their offense at Christ directly, what do you do when Christ is at the Father's right hand? You assault what? The church, right? So we saw that in First Peter. If you, 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 can't, you can't put your hands on Christ, but you can put his hand, your hands on his bride. You can put his hand, your hands on his people. So here we have the assaults continue from Christ now to his church. And understanding this, we can better appreciate Peter giving a voice to their offense. Not to validate it, but to help us understand it so that it can be properly addressed. And a good argument lends a good voice, an accurate voice to your opposition so that you can answer it in kind. Not so you can tear down some artificial enemy, but a genuine voice genuinely answered. And so that's what Peter does. He gives them a genuine voice, a clear voice to their offense so that he might properly answer it. So with this in view, hear their mocking again so that it might be answered. Peter states that from the mocking disposition, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So here we have their question, right? We have their question, which is followed by their purported rationale, effectively their ace, their best piece of evidence, which in turn becomes the object of Peter's immediate attention and rebuttal. So where is he? I haven't seen him. He hasn't come. You know, nothing has changed and so that's what Peter's going to aim at. This is the best they have to offer. It's not some artificial, this is what mockers might say. This is the best they have to offer. And with that being said, it's a curious approach to establish a rationale or even a defense of one's position on something so easily disproven. And consider, um, but, well, we can just pause there. Isn't that the nature of unbelief? It's, it's something you can make an assertion that truth just de destroys it so easily. But the nature of unbelief is that it still tenaciously holds on to, to that which is easily disproven. So that being said, consider an element of the larger discussion here, creation, a subject that our contemporary society um, obstinately refuses to consider. And yet it has, a, it has a wealth of information that would, by their own standards of evaluating data, require that the creationist position receive fair consideration. And so it's not a matter of what's good science. It's a matter of, will I let truth challenge my presumptions? Will I let truth really be bore out, as it were? Because I'm arguing I'm pursuing truth, but like the mockers, you just dismiss it, wish it away, and otherwise, or slander it. And it can't receive proper consideration from them because the scriptures, they would argue, are not a sufficient authority for them. And neither are they for the mocker, as made so plain in their statement. 
See what they're doing? They're undermining the integrity and the authority of the scriptures, something we've taken a lot of time to build up over the last couple of weeks, but we see this assault here. So the creation is assaulted because it's not, quote, good science because you lack an authority, which is not true. And the mockers would say Christ hasn't come, not coming because there's a lack of authority that says otherwise. And you might say, well, no, but they, they would look to the scriptures and they would, they would say that this just doesn't bear up. Well, they're challenging the scriptures by their assertion that nothing has changed, therefore nothing will change. Because something has changed, hasn't it? Radically so. But that assertion has led them to claim, uh, leading them to claim to want to know where the validation or proof of Jesus' return is. So they would say, nothing has changed, and so what do you got? Why do you believe he's returning? Why, do you, why, would you, why would you have such confidence, such joy, such a hope, as nothing appears to have changed since the beginning of creation? So what does Peter do? He reminds them of something. He reminds them of a radical change in terms of history, namely the Noahic flood, because they are not expressing that things have not changed in any way or in any regard, but they propose their challenge with a view to God's radical disruption of the established created order, specifically as expressed in his righteous judgment that quite literally will change everything. Because everyone, including the mockers, would acknowledge that clearly things have changed from the Garden of Eden to the rise and falls of cities and states and empires to mountains quaking and valleys ripping apart and forests changing to deserts and islands rising from the sea. They recognize there's changed, lots of change. Even their own cultural experiences testify to change. Being in the midst of the Roman Empire and its impact on the world declared change and transformation. The fact they would use Greek is a change. The Greek Empire had fallen and the Roman Empire had ascended. And so there's clear change and transformation, but they would argue, yes, 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 but not cladochismic change, not radical, not dynamic, not total transformational change, not a reordering of otherwise fixed elements of this natural world, changes that only a creator could provide and the judge of the earth might demand. That's what they say hasn't happened because that's what they don't want to happen in the days ahead. Therefore, they would argue there was a lack of change of the nature that will come when Christ returns. Because again, yes, it's our glorious hope. Yes, we will enjoy his presence forever. But yes, there's also a day of reckoning, of holy and righteous reckoning. And so that's the nature of the, the, the dynamic, the total uh, radical interruption of creation. They said, we haven't experienced that, so we don't expect it to come. As though they were demanding a proof of concept that couldn't be delivered. And so someone comes and, uh, I don't know, I don't know anybody that does this anymore, the old uh, vacuum cleaners, that do the, the carpet cleaners, and they spill the ketchup and stuff, and like, oh, proof of concept. That's really what they're doing, right? They want to show you that what I'm saying holds up. And what the mocker's saying is there's no proof of concept. It's never happened. It's not going to happen. So, again, it's not unlike the mocking at the cross. Come down, and I will believe. You provide this proof of concept. And because of the testimony that they, like the false teacher, are driven by their carnal motivation, the matter of interest or perhaps concern for the blasphemer is, again, it's not the glory of Christ's return. They don't sing about their expectation of Christ coming to receive his own. They're fearful that when he comes, there's a weight of accompanying judgment that they can't bear up under. That's the issue. And we can see this now in how Peter begins his rebuttal. When they maintain this, when they maintain this, or more plainly stated, when they desire or will this conclusion that nothing has changed since the beginning of creation, as again, as though they could wish truth away, a sentiment expressed in the, the English Standard Version's translation here, they deliberately overlook this fact. So they're, they're willfully, no, it's not, not going to happen, not going to be the case. They're choosing to reject that the God who spoke creation into existence is the sovereign judge of the said creation, a fact made unequivocally clear with the Noahic flood. So you wonder, why do we make such a big deal about the flood? Well, it's really, it's because we didn't make a big deal of it. We're just highlighting it's a big deal. And the assault of the mockers would have to dismiss that because that gives us a proof of concept, as it were, to that which is yet to come. So Peter makes this argument quite clear here. He expresses that the natural creation was produced, was brought into existence by the word of God 
the word spoken by God, which created the heavens and the earth, a process by which he chose to uniquely use water, which subsequently became the means by which the creator also destroyed that world and all life thereon, with the exception of Noah, his immediate family, and the creatures preserved on the ark. And now here I would remind you that I heavily emphasize again the attention of the word of God for this section because it's by means of the word of God that we truly understand creation and the destruction it suffered so long ago with the Noahic flood, a flood that put God's righteous wrath on display and demonstrated that he is the sovereign judge of creation and will hold it to account accordingly. Therefore, the mocker's allegation that there is no, quote, proof of concept regarding the nature of the expected judgment to come with Christ at his return is a willful overlooking or blatant disregarding of the clear testimony of the scriptures. And perhaps it should more securely capture our attention that this is now the third time, third time that Peter's directly referenced the Noahic flood. He's done this in the framing of our understanding of Christ's glory and its accompanying judgment now three times in these two letters. So to best appreciate these matters, let's take just a moment to highlight some of the framework of how we got to the Noahic flood, what it's communicating, and then why Peter's using it throughout his first and second letter and now driving it home here. And so regarding both the creation account and the Noahic flood, um, we'll give some consideration from Genesis and then we'll return to Peter's three points of reference, the Noahic flood. So first we note that Genesis begins exactly as we would expect after hearing Peter's statement regarding the natural creation. Namely, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Remember, by the word of God, the creation came and was spoken to existence by and through water. This is Peter's testimony. He's getting that from the creation account. From here, we read of each respective day of creation, unfolding the events of God speaking and calling into existence that which was not and shaping and forming what he has now made, to include the separation of the waters and the forming of land. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, Genesis 1.9. And so the narrative of creation continues culminating with the creation of man and God's instructions to his now completed creation, which he observed and concluded to be good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our own likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created them, created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps in the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and everything that creeps in the earth, which is life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. We then advance to Genesis 3, where we read of the fall of man, and the plummeting of the natural creation to a cursed condition. The creation rebelled, and the creator did what? He held it to account. That's what the mocker won't have. He holds his creation to an account. So there was an immediate consequence, and there would ultimately be an eternal consequence too. Picking up in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, then, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, we should maybe pause here and ask a question of the mocker. So the mockers propose their question, where's the promise of his coming? Nothing since, since the days of the, the, the fathers, nothing has changed, nothing in all creation to the present, all the way, or from the, the history all the way to the present. And so maybe we could pose a question for them. What about this creation is like it was from the beginning? What, what is the same? And by beginning, do you mean Genesis 1 and 2? 
or Genesis 3 and after. So if it's Genesis 1 and 2, then we, everybody's got a terrible problem because now we have, a fall, we have the fall of man. And so let's bump it up. Let's give you a measure of respectable benefit of the doubt because from Genesis 3 and after, we have already observed that sin will be held to a most severe accounting, an accounting that has to be satisfied. So even if we just pick up with Genesis 3, the argument, the, 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 the core of the argument still has to be answered that there is a righteous accounting that has to be satisfied. So if it's a post-fall world from which uh, they are broadly framing the beginning of creation, then perhaps they could argue that nothing by way of magnificent or catastrophic judgment has occurred. That is, and that would be true, right? Nothing of catastrophic, magnificent, total uh, outrageous judgments occurred that would be true if Peter wrote when? Sometime between Genesis 3 and 6, before the flood, right? If that's what we're right reading to, but Peter didn't write before the days of Noah, did he? So if Peter wrote before the days of Noah, then maybe we could acknowledge the mocker's argument, but he didn't. Peter wrote thousands of years after the flood. And so we have the Noahic flood that has to be accounted for. And with it, the clear severity of God's righteous judgment. So we pick up in Genesis 6. And let's see if there's been anything that's changed from the beginning of creation. Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was e only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. So you have the prevailing impacts of sin throughout the world. So declared good joyful, satisfied with his creation, to regretting, to I'm going to snuff out, blot out all of man with the exception of Noah and his family and that which is preserved in the ark. So we have from the prevailing impacts of sin throughout the world and the decision of the creator God to render his righteous judgment upon the whole natural world. That is a really dramatic point in history. Something has changed, therefore something will change. But we fast forward, we come to the flood itself, um, in verses 17 to 24, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth and the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth and the ark went on the surface of the water and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered and all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. That is birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth as well as all as mankind, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land, died. Thus he blotted out everything, every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and the only Noah remained and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Or we could summarize this, Genesis 6, with Peter's statement, the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. Do you see what he's referencing? Nothing's changed. And Peter said, the world was destroyed, being totally submerged, totally overwhelmed, totally destroyed with water. And as we've established, this was Peter's third reference to the flood, a matter that bolsters its credibility but that wasn't necessarily his aim. That does support it, right? When you have an apostle three times within two letters mention the Noahic flood, that says, okay, he's affirming the Noahic flood. That's true. But I don't think that was his argument. He would rather take that for granted. Rather, he spoke of the flood in two distinct ways. In the third chapter of his first letter, he spoke of the flood in the context of Christ declared triumph on the cross 
and he included a detail of God's judgment that he picked up again in this final chapter of his second letter, namely the patience of God in delaying the full expression of his judgment, which brought destruction to the entire natural creation at that time with a clear and most severe expression of this applied to all the land creatures who breathe the breath of life, most notably man, leaving only those in the ark safe and to subsequently become the first occupants and stewards of the new world. In the second chapter of his, um, of his second letter, Peter spoke of the flood in the context of God's righteous judgment upon the ungodly, a full and definitive judgment that was God's to deliver and an illustrative foretaste of the sure judgment to come, which is the object of his attention here, the sure judgment of the ungodly. So Peter makes it plain that the substance of the mocker's evaluations are deficient, willfully deficient. They've made the choice to overlook that things are not just as they were since the beginning of creation. There was a fall of man and the cursing of the natural world, and in a preciously short time there, was, there came a worldwide judgment of the earth and its inhabitants. Its Lord, Creator, God, and Judge was patient, but in his time brought a full destruction. And now the testimony of the Scriptures through the Lord's apostles is that this world has another reckoning coming, and it will again be destroyed. This time, the heavens and the earth by fire, a fire that will express God's righteous judgment and the consuming of this natural world, but also in the full and final judgment of the ungodly. And the fire which Peter speaks to here is no more a metaphor than the floodwaters were a metaphor. Mountains were submerged. The earth was completely transformed, as it were. I remember Matt and Frank probably remembered Dr. Berg emphasizing that you, you translate Genesis 1 through 5 differently regarding geography than you do 6 and after because rivers move when you have a flood. Things change. And just as the water was water, the fire will be fire. And it's not some terrible metaphor, but the rather this is a, a complete and absolute consumption by heat. And it reaches not simply to express, uh, and this is not simply to, to say, well, it's great in scope. It is total in scope. The heavens and the earth, all the elements... This is true fire from God, and it will consume the ungodly in the world of this natural creation down to its very elements. That's a sure judgment to come. Now, some of you, in view of this, will recall earlier this year, um, I don't remember if it was early this year or late last year, when we're working through 1 Peter chapter 4, we came across, uh, we came across a pair of questions. Peter presents two questions. And I'm confident that we answered them well at that time in the immediate context, but how much more plain could we have answered them in view of what Peter states for us here now in 2 Peter? And consider that as we listen to these questions once more from 1 Peter verses 17 to 18. Peter says, For it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Remember our, our call to reckoning. And if it begins with us first, now hear this question in view of where we are in 2 Peter. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The answer is the godless man and the sinner will experience God's full, final, and perfect judgment. A judgment expressed by fire consuming this present creation and producing their destruction. Not their annihilation, but their destruction which will continue forever a destruction of a like nature to the total and magnificent destruction that the world experienced with the Noahic flood. That was a destruction by water. This will be a destruction by fire. Peter, I think, is the only New Testament author to speak so plainly about the future destruction by fire. And it's not just a, well, it's going to be bad. It's going to be absolute. The heavens, the earth, the elements. And this destruction will not yield to a, a transformed world that maybe the rivers have moved and now we have this great Grand Canyon and now we have these fossil records and the mud and all this has changed. It's not going to yield to a transformed world that so quickly reminds us of the fallen nature of men and, it's, of men and, our, and the accompanying curse of the fall. Rather, this destruction will yield to what? He's going to go on to develop this later in chapter 3. It will yield to a new heavens and a new earth of what nature, one that has the remnants of the fall and the reminder of that which was. No, it's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
So Peter has plainly answered the deficient argument proposed by the mockers. That with a view to God's judgment on a universal scale, nothing has happened from the beginning of creation to the present, and therefore nothing should be expected either. This was a belligerent decision to ignore the Noahic flood. But believed or not, the testimony of the scriptures are clear regarding the flood, and they're equally clear regarding the forthcoming destruction of the present creation by fire. A destruction that is being kept for the judgment and destruction of ungodly men to include the false teachers and the mockers. And now Peter directs his attention to the substance of the mocking. Where is the promise of his coming? A matter that he impacts in verses 8 through 10 as he expresses God's gracious and just timeline, which we will introduce today and then return to next week. So let's read this next section now and give a few moments of attention to its opening verse. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. So here, eight and following, I see a shift in tone. And again, it's one of those that you, you walk with Peter long enough, you read it, you hear it, you're, you're going to see there's a, there's a shift in tone here, as though Peter was expressing a corrective rebuke to the mockers in verses 5 through 7. They mock because they can't bear up under Christ's return, not because they, they don't like his glory. They despise his glory because there also is accompanying judgment. And so there's a harsher, harder tone in 5 through 7. But now there's a shifting of his attention to a, a more of a, a pastoral exhortation to the believers. And we, we noted this a few times before, but here we see his second use of beloved in addressing his readers, a, a term that should capture our attention. He, he saves it for this last chapter. He packs it in. A uh, number of times there. And so we have the, the second use of beloved in addressing his readers. And also the contrasting use of escaping one's notice. He addresses escaping one's notice in one way to the mockers, but in a different way to the believers, to the beloved. So in correcting the folly of the mocker, he has just stated that when they make these deficient arguments to uphold the sub- substance of their mockery, the plain testimonies of the scriptures escape their notice. They make a bad argument because this escapes their notice. Now, notice how he's using the same term, same phraseology. He's calling upon his beloved readers to not be uninformed themselves, not regarding the flood, but the nature of God's timing as the eternal God is himself outside of and Lord of time. And he's saying, don't let this escape your notice. Truth has escaped their notice, which is why they would seek to undermine its credibility. But don't let this escape your notice that the Lord's timing is good and it's sure. And it's not as though God has a different vantage point for time necessarily, but rather a different relationship with it, as again, he is outside of and Lord of time. Kenneth Gangle stated, people see time against time, but time only seems long because of man's finite perspective. That's where we are. We are restricted and limited in our vantage point. God doesn't have this relationship with time, and therefore neither does he have this tension of perspective with its passing. Now, um, and I have a a timeline there just to show you how how much we can fit and shrink time in our perspective. It's, it's, It's hard to work around. It's hard to get our hands around. But God sees outside of these things. And I want to pause for just a moment because I know there's a time and place to do certain things, right? Um, I might have an opinion on something, and if it's an opinion, then I should reserve it for an opinion context, not a teaching and exhortation context. And I know I shouldn't use this to express personal grievances and pet peeves, but I think it's applicable here. So will you bear with me for a moment? It's of a like nature to, so something that would be out of bounds to, to just really thunder the pulpit with would be if I told you to stop using emojis in your text messages. You know, you have words, use them. That's not really the place to do that. But I do think there's a grievance that is applicable here. And it's my frustration with the concept of dog years. Many of you have used this, and I forgive you. 
as though there's an actual distinction from actual years. It makes no sense. I, I don't think somebody's told you that. They just haven't been honest with you. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Almost everything has a different maturing and life cycle. So we have trees and turtles, bearded dragons. I'm sure they have a different life cycle and, and expectation. Um, sunflowers, everything. Everything in this natural creation has a range of experience with time, doesn't it? Because we all have a beginning. And broadly speaking, everything has a common life cycle for its species and types. That's why we can say that this element of creation usually lives this long, or this element of creation usually lasts this long. So everything has a beginning, everything has a, a general common expectation of life cycle, and everything has a conclusion. So we as a people have a clear vantage point in relation to time and its passing, don't we? It's hard to understand things outside of that to include the experiences and expectations of events, we, we, have, we peg them with a timeline. We peg them with where they fit in terms of relation to other elements in time. Matters to which we gain some perspective when we do things like study history or even just map out the experiences of maybe our own family or our own nation. Some events seem so far away and others as though they just happened. Um, an example I could give would be the Civil War. So I know Andrew is a big Civil War guy and historian and loves, he could tell you the details of battles and stuff. And I remember learning about it in school, and it just seemed so long ago. I mean, the way they dressed, the way they fought. I mean, my grandfather was in World War II, so Civil War had to be forever ago. But then ministering in an assisted living home in my 20s, I met residents whose grandparents didn't fight in World War II. Their grandparents fought in the Civil War. I thought, that doesn't make sense. That was so long ago. The timetables don't make sense. Because our relationship and understanding of time can be quite challenging because we have such a limited vantage point. And we predominantly live with a view to a very narrow range, even within our fuller experience. So in one sense, because of the imminent nature of Christ's return, there's the potential for anxiety. Has he come? No. Though some did maliciously upset the Thessalonians with that prospect. Okay, so he hasn't come. Will it be soon? Is he, is, will he be here soon? Well, yes. In a matter of speaking, and then maybe a follow-up would be, in a matter of speaking, yes, in a matter of speaking, you know, like dog years, um, timetables become a matter of perspective. For a common house fly at 15 days, what, you're pushing midlife at best, and the cicadas at the pass home, as we learn from our driveway experience, 15 days, they're just nestling in for about a decade in the ground. Vantage point and experience varies, and so you have the here we have different vantage points, different perspectives. So imminence, a quick and urgent and soon expectation for the eternal God has a different vantage point than for those of us who are in such a brief time going to return to the dust. So Christ's imminent return is still imminent. It's just hard for us to get our hands around because it's just a matter of time before we will join those who have preceded us. A matter plainly understood as far back as Moses and David so in Psalm 90, we read Moses writing, and the, the, the one psalm credited to Moses, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of, man, of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening it withers away and dries up. So that's the testimony of Moses. Sounds very much like who? Like Peter. And later, the testimony of David in Psalm 103, picking up at verses 13 to 16. So Yahweh has compassion in those who fear him, for he himself knows our form. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flowers. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. And by contrast to our impermanence, to our fleeting and temporal nature, we have, picking up again in Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18, but the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Man, so fleeting, so temporal, but God and his purposes enduring forever and ever. So Peter speaks plainly to us here in his exhortation that he would 
not that we would not succumb to the demoralizing assaults of the mocker. Yeah, that's what they're attempting to do. They're attempting to, to undercut the joy and the expectation of our blessed hope. So he says, don't, don't receive that. Don't, don't respond in the kind and the way that they would expect you to. But rather, we're to maintain a proper perspective as he writes. Again, do not let this escape your notice. Truth has escaped their notice. Don't let this escape your notice. We're working on a different timetable than the Lord as one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. And here I think it might be helpful to provide a mostly unnecessary sidebar for our present company, but one that we at least want to acknowledge here um, in view of uh, the treatment that the passage has received in terms of other arguments. So that's an encouragement for us, but the passage has also been used in other ways. So let me do a quick sidebar here. And that's to specifically to exhort you to not let someone take the plain comparison of expressing the matter of vantage points here as grounds to abuse literal expression of numbers, particularly the manner in which one day and a thousand years are used. So you have those who would say that this perspective or vantage point expressed by Moses in Psalm 90 and Peter in 2 Peter 3 or what God was communicating with the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. We're, we're not affirming that. But people will say, look, look at how Moses used this. Look at how Peter used that. That's how we should look back and, and view creation, thereby making days of creation extraordinary extended periods of time, a proposal that has no textual or hermeneutical integrity, and in its efforts to appease their tensions with secular science and biblical history, only makes fools of themselves. It doesn't even work on an evolutionary model to have this long without a son and this long of these circumstances and this long without that. It's nonsense, an attempt to appease. And shame on us and anybody that would succumb to that. Don't abuse the text in that way. And with a view to the other end of history are those who key in on the fact that a thousand years also happens to be the length of Christ's future kingdom reign from Jerusalem before the end of all things, the passing of the present creation and the instituting of the eternal state. So they distort how a thousand years should be understood in various ways, but all short of literal, saying that, well, this is how Moses and Peter referenced it. That's not how they referenced it. It was a point of comparison. The thousand years have absolutely, their use of a thousand years, Moses and Peter, has absolutely no bearing on the millennial kingdom, which is expressed in the plain and literal understanding of the years of this natural creation, and therefore is a true 1,000 years long. Otherwise, just complete the abuse of this matter and call it a one-day kingdom. That's what he meant, just one day. But again, these are mostly unnecessary sidebars, but unfortunately, they're tied to our passage, so I wanted to highlight them before we finished out here. So mindful of the imminent return of Christ. It's in God's timetable. Peter goes on to remind us, that in view of this, in view of the fact that the mockers have proposed this, the scriptures have undone the argument of the mockers, and this is how you understand the eminence of Christ's return, that part of it is a matter of vantage point, that we are but dust, we are fleeting, God is eternal, he will fulfill his promises. Peter goes on to state, and this is further how you can have clarity regarding these matters, that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And this is what we're going to pick up next week. But as we come to a conclusion today, let's consider the matter of things that should never escape one's notice. Don't let this escape your notice. It should never escape one's notice that God has already exercised a righteous and terrible judgment by means of water. Because of the pervasive nature of man's sin, the world was destroyed, being deluged with water. This is the testimony of the scriptures, as is Jesus' statement that provides further insight into the common nature of that time too. Speaking of his return, Jesus stated, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And perhaps this is among the reasons that the mockers, they're driven to their mockery. They realize that if the testimony of the Noahic flood is true, and it is, then Christ's return truly is imminent. And it will require of them more than they can bear, because they would rather love their sin than repent. So they mock, 
and they refuse to believe. So once more, it should never escape one's notice that God has already exercised a righteous and terrible judgment by means of water. And it must never escape your notice that the vantage point of imminence does not change its surety. Because, again, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. But what does that look like? Well, maybe it looks like a trip to Kentucky. Um, a little over a week ago, um, Andre and I were finishing um, our ministry at the jail, and um, he was asking, I was telling him about the, our forthcoming trip that we just returned from, from the Creation Museum and the Ark, and he's like, I'd like to go. I'm curious about going. How long does it take to get there? Well, I could have just plugged it into my GPS, right? And be like, well, this is how long. But from my experience, this, that's at best a guesstimation. The, revo- the results of varied algorithms reflecting the computer's vantage point and the experience of other drivers. So I could give an idea and say, well, it's about this long. You know, like we can say Christ's return is imminent. But I chose to answer, I'll let you know when we get there. And for me, that's the best answer I can give because it's, because I could give a good range, kind of like expressing Christ's return is imminent, because it is, and every day more so, but ultimately we will know when he gets here. Because contrary to the mocker's conclusions, his word is sure and his return will be soon. And for this, we can rejoice and join John's prayer, come Lord Jesus, and it will be answered in due time. So we wait, but in view of God's perspective, we won't be waiting long. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're not intimidated or concerned or especially bothered, I wouldn't think, by the nature of these mockers. can't imagine the weight of judgment they're compounding on themselves. How does one answer the Lord of glory and have to behold and stand giving an account before you and saying that there was sufficient truth and yet I chose to make little of it, light of it, arrogantly dismiss it, assault it, because I didn't want it to be true. I didn't want this moment that is inevitable to come to come. And so undermined assaulted, hurt those for whom this is our blessed hope. What a terrible weight of judgment they will have to give an answer for. And Lord, we thank you that contrary to their mocking question, there is an answer. They asked a question that can be answered. They proposed something that doesn't, it's not sustainable. The very uh, nature of their question actually strengthens our argument. Something has changed. And that which changed was a catastrophic and, and terrible and magnificent judgment on this natural creation and on man as a whole, with the exception of but a few who enjoyed salvation. And so we thank you for that testimony. So early in the story of redemptive history, it really makes it so clear the, the, to, the, the saturating and permeating impact of sin. It makes it clear how odious these things are to you, and it, it makes it all the more precious as we celebrate Christmas that our Lord um, became man to suffer and to provide salvation. Uh, how precious how humbling. And now we do have the sure hope of your return. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice that as sure as the flood, so is so sure as your return. And it will be in your timing. And the timing that it can frustrate us because uh, like children that are sitting in the backseat on a long trip, they don't understand vantage point and perspective and progress the same way that a driver does, that they're engaged and they're involved and they're leading and they're making it happen. There needs to be a degree of trust, a degree of patience. And so here we are. We're, we're clamoring in the back. How long? And we're so grateful that the response is that it's a matter of your perspective on time is different than ours, and it's better, and it's a reflection of your patience. Your patience, which has afforded everyone here an opportunity to cry out, to repent, to believe, a patience that 
continues to afford those here to cry out to repent and believe. A patience that affords us to go and urge others to cry out and repent and believe. That patience will soon come to an end. And when it does, it'll be to our joy. But part of that joy will be an answering for sin and a, an, a total transformation, a consuming of this natural world, not just the earth being flooded, but the elements being consumed, the heavens, the earth. And not just because you're angry and just wish it all away, and, and if you wish something away, it's gone. Rather, it's because you have something better that will be yielded back. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new Jerusalem in which your beloved people will, will enjoy your presence forever. And so we give thanks to you, Lord, and ask that you would preserve us from uh, becoming disheartened by the mockers, that we would see it clearly, that we'd be strengthened in our own testimony. And we do pray with John, come quickly, come soon, and find us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name.